gospel-centric life. And as we continue in that uh, quest uh, in Romans chapter 1 this morning, we come to the subject of idols, of idolatry, of um, pseudo-gods or false gods, small g gods. And uh, we've seen uh, in Romans chapter 1 that, that God is angry, actually that God's wrath is being revealed in verse 18. First of all, because people suppress the truth about his very existence. And it ticks him off because he loves the people that he created. Uh, all people know that God exists, but most people do not pursue him. Most people are not interested to get to know him. Most people are not searching after him or even taking him seriously. Most people deliberately ignore him. Most people deny him. And to do that, you have to suppress the truth that God made himself known and that we have been made by him and that we've been made for him and that we've been made to be like him. But all that is suppressed in favor of a very strong desire that we're born with to be our own God. But whenever you do that, whenever you suppress the truth about God, when we ignore him and suppress that truth, since we were made to be connected and dependent on the transcendent, there's a void that gets created in our lives. God made us to live in dependence upon himself, in relationship to himself. And so when we suppress the truth, there's a void that begins to develop inside of our lives. And that void drives us to put something else in God's place. To put something else in God's place. And God is angry not just because we ignore him, but then we go on and replace him with something else. That's the essence of idolatry. Whatever I'm looking to, to make my life work apart from God, becomes a small g God for me. And we all have this problem. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul begins to unpack this problem that we all have. God is angry not because we just ignore him, but then we go on and replace him. Uh, God said it long ago in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah like this. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, God says this, My people have committed two sins. Two things, God says. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, the source of their life. And two, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. They've turned to other things to replace me that don't work. I've got two things, God says, against my people. Uh, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said it like this rather famous statement. He said, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Idolatry is the attempt to take something from this life and build your life on it. It's the attempt to take something from this life and build our lives on it, independent of God. It's the attempt uh, to meet the need for a sense of transcendence or significance apart from our Creator. And we all struggle with it. It's that... Um, I think I want to say in, back in Exodus chapter 20, it's the very first thing on God's mind when he begins to lay out for us how he wants us to live. You remember the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20, here's what he says, the very first thing. 
I'm the Lord your God, capital G. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other small g gods before me. And then God goes on to explain. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, I've reserved a place for myself in your life. And if you give that place that I've reserved for myself away to something or somebody else, I'm jealous and I'm ticked. And the wrath of God is being revealed. God is jealous for his place in our life. And when we give it away, he becomes angry. You know why? Uh, Because if you do that, you will be eternally diminished by whatever you put in God's place. And God knows it. Uh, Without him, your whole life will be limited to this broken existence that we have now. And God hates that, the thought of that. Eventually, you'll be destroyed by whatever it is that becomes the substitute for God in your life. The 139th Psalm tells us that God put more more numbers of thoughts into making you who you are than all the grains of sand on the seashore. Do you realize that? That God put so much thought into making you who you are, more than the number of grains on the seashore, And that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. How could you survive if you cut yourself off from the one who created you? And in Romans chapter 1, Paul says it like this in verses um, 21 to 23. For although people knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. God is angry, not just because we ignore him, but because we replace him. Idolatry is the attempt to take something from this life and build our whole lives on it. And it's usually good things. It's not usually bad things. It's usually good things. It's usually like a career. It's usually like a family. It's usually like money. It's usually like possessions. It's usually like a sport or a hobby. I enjoyed the Super Bowl probably as much as anybody else, but on the next morning, when there were people calling death threats into the losing team's receivers... Something's out of whack. Somehow sport became an idol, became a god that I'm willing to threaten murder over. What is that? Money, sexuality, fame, yourself. You can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of church when it takes the place of God. You can make an idol out of religion. Idols are usually made out of good things. I know that the word idol conjures up in people's minds 
you know, primitive images of people bowing down to, you know, wooden carved out deities someplace in the ancient past. And, and most people say, aren't we be beyond that now? I would read for you uh, from Isaiah chapter 44, just uh, even God mocks that idea of idolatry in Isaiah 44. Let me just read a couple of verses here. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last and apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Come forward, God says, right? Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my people Israel and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what is to come. Is there any other God? Then bring him before me and have him give me prophecy as to what's going to happen in the future. One of the great evidences of being confident that God is who he is and that his word is from him is the fact that he lays out before it ever happens what's going to happen. And then he says this, all who make idols are nothing. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant in their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire, bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his food. He roasts his meat, eats it to his full. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. And from the rest, he makes a god, small g, idol. His idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and he says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they can't see. Their minds are closed so they can't understand. Nobody stops to think. Nobody has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Even God makes fun of people who make idols out of wooden things. But Tim Keller, in his excellent book, contemporary book called Counterfeit Gods, points out that each culture, including our own, has its shrines dedicated to its idols. Whether it's office towers, spas, gyms, studios, or stadiums, the gods of beauty, power, success, money, achievement, pleasure, fame, are still behind the idolatry that's destroying our culture. Keller points it out like this. He says, whenever you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing, you create an idol. Whenever you take a good thing and you elevate it to an ultimate thing, you create an idol. As Margie was trying to help us see, you can take, you know, a good thing. Money is a good thing. When it becomes your ultimate thing, it'll ruin you. Entertainment is a good thing. When you live for entertainment, it'll take you down. True? 
It'll make you threaten the losers of the Super Bowl with murder, right? Because you got to have it. you got to win. It's your God. It's way out of proportion. Whenever you take a good thing, family, marriage, children, church, and make it the ultimate thing, apart from God, you create an idol. We as a people, uh, created in God's likeness, can choose to convey God-like status to anything we want. We as people who have been made in the likeness and the image of God can choose to convey God-like status onto anything that we choose. And uh, we do it because we think that by doing it, these idols can somehow give us meaning, give us significance, give us a sense of security or satisfaction or fulfillment, some kind of transcendence, some kind of idea that we are more than what we really are apart from God. And because we have that void for transcendence, we quickly put these different things in God's place. Anything more important to you than God himself is your idol. Anything that absorbs more of your heart and your imagination more than God is your idol. Anything or anybody that you look to to give you what only God can really give you is an idol. Anybody you think that you need besides Jesus in order to be satisfied and in order to find life is an idol. Whatever occupies first place in our hearts is our small g, God. And so when we ignore God, when we suppress the truth about our Creator, we look to something else to make life work. And often we turn to ourselves and we begin to attempt to control things to make them all work out the way we want, which often leads to sin which often leads to us compromise. I'm sure that these great, you know, patriot fans didn't realize that behind the sin of threatening to kill somebody is an idol at its root. And I want to suggest to you this morning, uh, just think of a sin that you struggle with. Think of some issue in your life that you know is a sin that you struggle with. And uh, I want to suggest to you that our sins are like dandelions. I hate dandelions. Okay? And if you take a dandelion and you try to just take the top off, what happens? It just keeps coming back. You have to pull the root in order to get rid of the dandelion. And I would say to you that at the root of every sin is an idol. And it'll never suffice to try to get rid of the sin until you can figure out what is the idol that's driving my life, that I have to have, that has to, in order to make my life work, and that I'm willing to sin for, that I'm willing to offend God in order to have this other small g God in my life. Because at the root of every sin, you will find some kind of idol. Uh, think of a sin that you struggle with, and you'll discover some kind of an idol. For example, why would you lie? I, I would suspect everybody in here has lied. I know I have. Why do I do that? Well, if you take the time to sort of figure out why would you lie, perhaps the acceptance of other people is more important to us than the acceptance by God. Perhaps we think that we can make life work better if I could just stretch the truth, lie a little bit in order to impress people and in the process give up impressing God with honesty and enjoying the smile of his delight on my life. Why do people lie? 
Uh, maybe you have a wandering eye. Why would you do that? Uh, why would you do that? Maybe self-pleasure is a God that's taken over instead of pleasing the God who made you and sacrificed his son for you and promises you an eternity. Why would you sin like that? Because there's an idol down underneath it that's got a root that somehow is necessary in order for us to make life work. If you were to take um, uh, the surface sin of refusing to tithe, why would you do that? Here's the God who gives you 100% of what you have from your life on. Well, perhaps the love of money is bigger than the love of God, and it's become an idol. All of a sudden, that idol of money can represent security, can represent, you know, uh, a future where I can, uh, I have power, and I can do things, and I can't trust God to really, he might have a different plan for my life. Why would we do that? And I just, I'm trying to make the point here that, you know, below the reality of our sin, there's always an idol. And the Apostle Paul in Romans is trying to make the case that he's going to go on here in Romans and list all kinds of surface sins, but they're always rooted in some kind of idol. Some kind of small G God, the very first concern God had when he gave the Ten Commandments, that no small G kind of God gets in the way and interrupts our relationship with the big G God. I am the God who gave you your life. Don't give away my place to some small g kind of God. I think that surface sins, uh, a lot of times, they're like idiot lights on our dashboard in the car. When the idiot light goes off and it says, you know, the oil pressure has dropped, it's a signal that something deeper inside is really wrong. And if you just cut the wire to the idiot light so that you solve the problem and it doesn't come on anymore, you basically blow up your car. And the surface sins of our life that we're able to observe and see, if not in ourselves, in one another, they're just idiot lights giving us a warning that somewhere deeper down inside of our hearts and inside of our minds, there's some small G God that's getting in the way of genuine worship of the only God that's really there. And uh, so you begin to think about this. Um, The Apostle Paul and... Romans chapter 1, he puts it like this, although people know God, they don't glorify him as God. They don't pursue him. They don't make him first in their life. And they don't give thanks to him. They don't recognize that more thought went into my life than grains of sand on the seashore. Could that really be true? Am I really that significant to God? Well, that's what he's telling us. But if we're not thankful... And uh, we refuse to acknowledge God for who he is. What happens is our thinking and our hearts get all messed up. When the idiot light goes off on the mental dashboard, it's signaling something's wrong with the way you're thinking. Something's wrong within your heart. Something dark and deep has taken over where the light should be shining. And the Apostle Paul says, you know, um, your mind is misfiring, your heart is uh, caught up in the dark. Some idol has gotten in the place of where God wants to be. And Paul goes on in Romans, as I said, to list all these different kinds of sins that grow out of idolatry. And again, if you pull up just the sin and not the idolatry, it'll just come back. And you can go all the way through life just kind of focusing on the wrong thing. And I think that's why Paul is addressing that in this particular thing. And so 
why is it that we turn to idols? Can I ask this question? Why do people turn to small g gods and have them in their life? Why is it that we lift them up in our hearts? And I want to simply suggest, I think it's because life is broken. Life is broken. And uh, life is not what it was meant to be. We need help to get by, to make it work. And God knows that. And God has offered himself to us especially in the person of Jesus Christ. But if we suppress the truth about our need for God and we begin to look for help elsewhere, that's the essence of idolatry. And so I think it's kind of like this. Wherever there's life, there's change. Would you agree? Wherever there's life, there's change. Wherever there's change, there's always an element of loss. Wherever there's change, there's always an element of of loss. And wherever there's loss, there's pain. And where there's pain, we look for some place to turn that would enable us to assurge the pain. Since the very beginning of human history, right in the very, very beginning, when the first people that God ever created, Adam and Eve, suppressed the truth about God and refused their creator, life changed. Life changed in two big ways, right there at the very beginning. Number one, uh, life uh, became temporary. Life became temporary. Death came on the scene. And uh, our transcendence was severed. You know what? Death mocks our significance. No matter how significant you are, we all end up dying. It mocks our significance. We've been severed from transcendence, from who we were meant to be in the in the image and likeness of God. And then second, we read right there in Genesis that life became cursed. That the wrath of God was being revealed against sin. And uh, the changes that keep occurring in our own temporary lives constantly bring losses. Every week, this week, people lost health. Some people lost significant health. People have lost loved ones. People lost dreams. People lost friends. People lost jobs. We all lost Whitney Houston and Gary Carter. And life, you know, uh, is filled with change. And change brings loss. And loss brings pain. And in God's word, uh, I want to say that's the nature of this life. But in God's word, God takes this life and he sets it in contrast with God's life. And he says, this is why you need me. I made you to be like me. I made you to be transcendent. I made you to be more than you are. And uh, it's revealed to us most clearly God's life in the person of Jesus, of whom it's said in his word, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. With God, there's not loss. And that's why God is so angry when people replace him with something temporary, something from this world. Because we diminish ourselves. We cut ourselves off from whom God made us to be, independence upon him. God does not change. God's life alone is transcendent and immortal. Did you catch it in Romans 
uh, chapter 1 and verse 21 there, for although they know God, they don't glorify Him, nor give thanks to Him. Their thinking becomes futile. Although they claim to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of immortality, the immortal God, the transcendent God. They exchange transcendence for images made to look like mortal man and whatever else we can come up with that are all part of this temporary world in which we live. And it frustrates God because it leaves us. He says the same thing in verse 25. He says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve created things rather than the creator. The things that God created rather than the creator himself. Remember, God reserves a place for himself in our lives. And when we give that place away to somebody else, we create a small g God. It's only through the gospel, really, that any person can get back their meaning, their dignity, their identity, their value. But like God said in Jeremiah, when we refuse him, the living water, the spring of life, we turn to cisterns uh, that we create that can't hold water, that can't give us life, trying to relieve the pain of our existence. But all we create is these broken cisterns that can't hold any water, and it creates anxiety, and it creates frustration, and it creates a whole society dependent on pills in order to sleep at night. It creates the restlessness that Augustine spoke about so many years ago. And so the sooner we repent, the sooner we acknowledge the real God, uh, the sooner we recognize these rival small g gods as idols and reject them uh, for the one true living God, the God who is really there, the sooner we expel the pseudo-gods from our hearts and we embrace the God of the gospel, the sooner we begin to experience the realities of love and joy and peace and transcendence that we were created for. The deliverance from sin happens when we identify the idol behind it and surrender it to God. The whole reason that we ever do anything wrong is, become, is because some idol has convinced us that there is something that we must have in order to be happy besides God. Something that's more important to us than God himself. And that's why I believe the first commandment is first. That's why God says, listen, don't have any other idols before me. We wouldn't lie unless we first set up some kind of idol that's more important to us uh, than the favor of God's smile on our lives, who is honest and who values honesty. The idol of human approval or maybe the idol of financial gain. Why would I lie? Well, because if I can deceive you into buying my product, I can get rich. You know, or perhaps my reputation or my significance. And these idols are often behind uh, the sin of lying. Why did uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lie in church? Remember they came and they made an offering and they said, Oh yeah, we sold the house and this is the whole wad. But it wasn't the whole wad. Why did they do that? What would be the idol underneath? Maybe wanting to gain acceptance? Maybe wanting to be like the other people who really did that? But to do it with a lie is to, uh, again, tap into this idol that's underneath. Uh, how do you get rid of sin? How do you stop lying? Can I say, don't try harder? It's not about trying hard. You'll spend the rest of your life trying harder to get rid of the sin in your life. Identify the idol that's behind it, and surrender it to the one true living God that's there. Worship 
really is about every part of our lives bowing down to the one true God who is there, the God who made us, the God who sent his son to die in our place to reconcile us to himself so that we could tap into this eternal life that he made us for. Uh, there are three things about uh, false gods uh, I want to suggest to you uh, that are always true. Number one, uh, false gods always diminish our life. They always diminish our life. Uh, they inflate a part of, human, of our humanity out of proportion. They take one part of our humanity and inflate it out of proportion until it becomes the whole thing. And in doing that, it diminishes everything else. Those fans who have an inflated part of their life given over to sports, who are willing to threaten murder, have, have been diminished. What do you think of those people now? Before, they were just fans. But their life becomes diminished because one part of their life gets so inflated, it ignores the other parts. And that's what idolatry always does. When you take one part of your life and, and it gets inflated beyond what it should be, uh, it diminishes us as people. It removes uh, our freedom. It creates compulsions and obligations. With the one true God, with the one true God, uh, there is always this expansion of our true self. There is always an enrichment of our lives. When we worship the one true God and we discover who he made us to be and so forth, instead of our existence being diminished, it gets enriched. It brings love and joy and peace and meaning and identity and value and eternity and so many things come into our life when our worship is focused on the one true God. Idols always diminish people's lives. Second thing about idols. False gods or idolatry uh, never come with forgiveness and grace. They never come with forgiveness. They always come demanding more. In order to keep that idol in first place in our life, it will keep demanding more and more and more. Um, if you just think about some idol that you might recognize in your own life, it just keeps demanding more and more surrender of yourself, the sacrifice of your true person. It removes our true freedom and creates these uh, compulsions and obligations. With the one true God, there's always forgiveness and grace. To know God is to know grace. He's the God of grace. He's the God who sacrificed his son in our place. Uh, and then third, I would say that uh, false gods always pervert worship because they always have you worshiping something temporary as if it were ultimate as if it were eternal. False gods always pervert our worship. Uh, Tim Keller, at the end of that book, Counterfeit God, Tim Keller's a great author, aside from the fact that he's a Presbyterian. He's really a good guy, you know? <clears throat> but uh, at the end of that book, which is an excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, he gives th four ways in which you can figure out what the idols are in your life. And I'll just go briefly. First of all, just ask yourself, what's in your imagination? When you daydream and you have some downtime, what are the themes that flow into your mind naturally and easily? What's in your imagination? Uh, what brings you comfort or joy in the privacy of your own heart? If every time you have some downtime, you're thinking about driving along the beach in a brand new Corvette, you've just found your idol. Because guess what? I mean, this is what always returns to your mind without any effort. So one way you can figure out what idols might be lurking in your own life, cutting you off from all the fullness of God, is your imagination. Second, 
He said, study your money. Because Jesus said this, where your treasure is, your heart is. Study your money. Just uh, think about, you know, where you spend your money. Um, we tend to spend cheerfully on what we love. Cheerfully, right, on, on what we love. Uh, Keller says the mark of an idol is spending too much money, too much money on it. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, I think, in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, uh, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Study your money. See where it flows. Because wherever it goes the easiest is probably where the idols of our life might be. Third, this is interesting. Look at your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. And he asks this question. He says, how do we respond when the answer to our prayers is no? You may have found your idol. Have you gone to God and prayed and prayed and asked God and asked God and you know that God is the only one who could make this thing that is so important to you come true and the answer is no? Do you quit on God? Do you stop serving him? Do you say, you know what? If you're not going to do what I'm asking you to do here, I'm done. Do you stop praying? Because once again, we have been created to fit into God's story. God doesn't exist to fit into our story. And sometimes the answers to our prayers when they're no teach us this lesson that we've been created to fit into his story. And that's a whole different paradigm than thinking that prayer is a matter of forcing God to fit into our story and writing our own script. Uh, God is the only one, a lot of times, who could help make this reality come true, and the answer is no. So what do we do? If we pout, if we quit, if we drop out, I think you might have found your idol. It's more important to you than God himself. And then the last way that Keller suggests is uh, uh, our emotions. What is it in your life that drives you to do wrong things? What is it that's so important to us? What needs, what pain, what fears, what makes us really angry that we're willing to compromise what we otherwise know is God's will for us in our life? Four ways to kind of tap into what are the idols. Can I just say that uh, true worship is shattering our pseudo-gods, our idols, our small-g gods, and bringing everything to bow down before the one true living God, the God who is actually there, who is known through the person of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, gospel-centric living. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, you're so wise. And we do admit it's so easy to focus on the surface sins in our lives and not do the work of trying to expose the idols that are behind them. Of not being honest and, and open and transparent enough in your presence to allow you to speak to us about those things that we're looking to to give us the life that only you can give us. And no wonder you're angry. No wonder your wrath is against, Father, us when we would put 
a, a temporary substitute into the place that you've reserved in our lives for yourself. How our lives get diminished by the idols we serve. And so, Father, we invite your spirit uh, to come among us and give us the courage to have the confidence that when we stop worshiping these small g God idols and we forsake them in order to bow down and worship before the one true living God, that you bring about the richness and uh, the enhancement in our life that we're all looking to get through some idol instead. May we prove you to be true by surrendering our idols and offering ourselves wholeheartedly in worship to you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.